City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City, City Limits. limits. Welcome to City Limits. You're listening to 3CR and today we have a special show. Uh, I'm Megan Kimber and I'm here with Zeb and we have some amazing guests. It's the fourth Wednesday of the month on City Limits so there's no particular theme but we've got a couple of really excellent guests and of course Karina's there behind the scenes as well which we couldn't do this without her. It was incredible. Working like 24 hours a day for this show. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Karina. Um, so one of our guests today is from the Stop Bunnings on Glen Lyon group. Um, so we'll be talking about how they got together a community uh, campaign during a lockdown, which will be really interesting. And we'll also hear about the details of that campaign. And um, our other guest is from the Rahu Renters and Housing Union, talking about uh, a resident of a community uh, housing cooperative, a, a housing association, who has been facing eviction for 12 years as a result of her uh, community uh, actions. So uh, we'll be talking to both of those guests later in the show, but we're going to start with a little bit of news. And I don't know whether Zeb has a cup of tea. I've just like finish my tea in about five <laughs> seconds <laughs> yeah I needed the caffeine I can pour a cup of tea Monday. yeah okay there we go and we'll be proud yeah um Zeb how have you been have you got some news for us today uh yes yeah I've been well I looked up some a few news items for today um, and I thought uh, one to start, off, start us off which I found interesting um, was this proposal of Fab Friday this free public transport and early knockoffs um, for workers in the CBD to try and bring business back into the CBD mm. um, so it's an interesting proposal because on the one hand, uh, I'm a fan of free public transport, mm -hmm. um, but on the other hand, it is, um, it's the property council's doing and it's basically a plan to, um, you know, get businesses to be able to stay in the CBD and be able to pay mm. rent in the CBD. Mm. Um, and yeah, I'm not sure whether we really need the CBD to act in that way anymore. So what do you think? Well, it's interesting. I know that um, lots of the suburbs around Melbourne, you know, as the lockdown has ended, we've seen these suburbs like just come alive again so fast and with mm -hmm. so much enthusiasm and vigour. And it seems like those kind of areas... I mean, I guess I'm talking about mostly the inner north because that's where I am. But I think from talking with people, like it just seems like um, venues are experiencing 
a lot of uh, a, a lot of people, you know, socialising out in public. And maybe it has a bit to do also with the fact that there's like a 100 person cap on events, but there's like a 30 person cap at houses. So, um, you know, maybe people would rather people who are hungry for that. Uh, you know, being in the stranger's armpit, listening to some loud music is they're, they're like, they're like, I'm definitely going to go out for this. But um, I have noticed like the rare times when I go into the city that um, it still seems really quiet, really mm-hmm. quiet compared to what it used to be. Yeah. Um, but I was one of those people that would not be in the city very much anyway, but probably more when I did work, you know, near the city. So uh, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, uh, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it does seem a little strange, you know, um, having this sort of one time on a Friday where things are free, yeah. uh, seems to be a bit counter the idea of like spreading things out on public transport and still social distancing. Yes. Uh, so that's one apparent problem (laughs) with the idea um and yeah the idea of free public transport in itself i i'm pro but i don't know how much it changes to just make it free for one day or like one part of the day um Mm. and only like one particular area so yeah um it's like public transport's free as long as you go and spend your money yeah that's really like (laughs) yeah that's very true (laughs) yeah Yeah, it's funny how like um that kind of the sort of capitalist view of things would be like oh of course public transport should never be free and it's such a drain on the public purse and it has to be subsidized all the time just to be like um viable but uh, as soon as it's like, oh my god, businesses are losing money, they're like, make it free, quick! Yeah. <laughs> like, make up your mind, guys. Like, which <laughs> one is it? <laughs> yeah. Um, um, what was some of the other stuff you saw this another week? Another thing that I saw was um, so it's a it's an article from the Sydney Morning Herald, uh, and the title is Coles Nestle in plans to build first ever soft plastics recycling plant. Um, mm. Obviously, not first ever. It's the, the first <laughs> in Australia <laughs> that can um, recycle plastics to be food safe again, mm. which which is a good thing. But it's kind of a similar um, sort of good, but also not completely good thing. <laughs> mm. I know. So yeah. they have a area in Geelong apparently that's they're saying is suitable to construct the plant. Mm-hmm. which would be capable of producing 17,000 tonnes of soft plastic. I have a bit, I feel a bit sad about plastic being turned into more plastic because yeah. <laughs> I don't really think that solves the problem. I would love to see a, redu- a reduction in the use of plastics and, and how common they are, but that's a different problem. So, Yeah, um, it's, it's yeah. tricky because you do want to ultimately um, say we shouldn't be producing as much plastic. Mm. Uh, we shouldn't have to use so much packaging um, mm. for things that don't need it. Um, mm. But then while we do have so much plastic, we still need to deal with that. So it's like, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. It's like uh, not that I think 
you know, it's not that hard to actually reduce the amount of plastics that are around. I think it has to do with the way that we consume produce and mm-hmm. um, the kind of idea of um, uh, having, you know, most people accessing uh, produce from, from places that are quite far away from, from where they live. Um, and, yeah, the monopoly of, of supermarkets um, as the way that people get their food. But uh, I think with the plastic, the plastic bags is a good example of the fact that if the pressure is put, like businesses are not going to do something spontaneously that's not going to make them a profit because if you're mm. publicly listed, you know, if you're on the stock market, your ultimate responsibility is to your shareholders, not to your customers and not to your community. That's the way our sort of social and legal system has set this up. So until you're actually forced to... Um, not use something like plastic bags, they're not spontaneously going to do it. But as soon as it happens, it's like, that was so easy. You know, there's all this talk about, oh, it's going to be so hard and how's everyone going to get their shopping home? Well, uh, it's, you know, everyone just adjusts to it in like a week or two. Yeah, yeah, that's really fine. (laughs) Yeah, it's fine. So, but yeah, there's another example of kind of, um, you know, finding a way to profit from uh, a problem that they've created. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I thought it was funny, some of the things that came up in the article. So um, the Coles' chief sustainability officer was noting that, you know, this is going a long way to the retailers' long-term sustainability goals. And um, at one point says, um, as Australia's most sustainable supermarket, we're supporting (laughs) initiatives like this. And it's just like, Mm, most <laughs> yeah okay <laughs> mm, okay mm. okay so, well the last mm. um article that i found for today um was also sydney morning herald um and it's breathtaking hypocrisy backlash over arthur's seat quarry plan um so basically there's this philanthropic philanthropic organization the Ross Trust uh, which has in the past given grants out to multiple environmental groups Um, but now they are deciding to expand this disused quarry near to Arthur's Seat State Park um, and start mining again (laughs) Hmm. Um, (laughs) okay it's a weird thing for a philanthropic trust to do I feel but maybe I just don't understand how philanthropic grants work <laughs> well it does seem extremely strange and there's all of these environmental groups like the Australian Conservation Foundation and Environmental mm. Justice Australia and things that have sort of pulled out of their relationships with the Ross Trust because mm. they're going it's going against their environmental values um, and so yeah loads of people are coming out against it and it just seems kind of bizarre that um the organization would have thought that that would have been a a good idea for its image wow so the quarry if this if i've got this right the quarry is operated by the trust in order to generate income to then distribute for charitable purposes yeah exactly to like environmental organizations yeah (laughs) Well, (laughs) 
I don't even know where to start with that. Yeah. They'll be like generating money and then an environmental group will get it and like use the money to regenerate the area that they just wrecked by mining it. <laughs> well, the whole thing just goes around and around. Yeah. That's, yeah, <laughs> that's uh, quite concerning. And I think it shows... Um, some of the problems with charitable organizations and philanthropic organizations which we have um, touched on before on city limits because someone wrote a an interesting book about um uh charitable how charities kind of work in in our society and some of the shortcomings of that yeah um perhaps if listeners scroll back through the archives they might be able to find that um but yeah extremely problematic but Unfortunately, we don't have time to really break it down. For, unfortunately or fortunately, because I wouldn't know where to start with this one. <laughs> but um, it's coming time to when we are expecting our first guest. Um, so we might take a little break and we'll be back in a minute. You're listening to City Limits on 3CR Community Radio. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Merhaba. Bugün nasılsınız? A Turkish eco-feminist approach to dismantle the toxic misconception of the good immigrant. Intrigued? Well, so are we. The good immigrant is broadcasted in Turkish every Thursday between 6.30pm to 7pm. Tell your friends and family because you have a date with Özesu and Özgü. 3CR, 8.55am, Thursdays, 6.30pm to 7pm. See you all then. Food Co-op is open. Get fresh produce and support local farmers and keep our grassroots community thriving through these unusual times. Organic veggie boxes and click and collect now available. Visit www.foefood.org slash click collect to place your orders. Or pop in store at 312 Smith Street and see how we're adapting with our new physical distancing layout. Shop organic and buy local. Made easy at Friends of the Earth. A proud 3CR supporter. OK, 
Okay, welcome back. You're listening to City Limits on 3CR. And we've got our first guest in today, Andrea Bunting from the Glen Lyon Bunnings Action Group. Um, here to talk to us about their campaign to stop the um, Bunnings that is proposed to be built on the near the intersection of Ligon Street and Glen Lyon Road. So welcome, Andrea. Thank you for having me. Can you tell us about a little bit about uh, this proposal that Bunnings are making? Yes, this is quite unprecedented. Um, Bunnings wants to build a large warehouse and uh, timber yard right in the middle of a residential area. It's uh, completely surrounded by uh, six blocks of flats, um, townhouses and houses. So generally Bunnings would build in a commercial or industrial area. But this one is quite um, <laughs> unique. And if it goes ahead, it will set a terrible precedent. The area, the site is actually a remnant industrial site, which the council was in the process of rezoning to a mixed use, um, you know, offices, uh, small mm -hmm. business and residential. But uh, the developer jumped in first and has proposed a large Bunnings warehouse there. Um, and it's it, not only is it in the middle of a residential area, it's actually in a very conge congested area for traffic. It's an area a lot of people walk and cycle and uh, there are public transport routes. So we have the, it's right near the Ligon Street, Brunswick trams. Um, there's a bus along Glen Lyon Road. Glen Lyon Road has bicycle paths. Um, and yes, so it's just, uh, and Bunnings generate an awful lot of traffic. It's like a, it's like a mini shopping centre type levels of traffic. Mm -hmm. And of course, a lot of trucks and trade vehicles, which start at six o'clock in the morning going past people's windows. Yeah, okay. So and it that's seems, the plan. It seems a bit strange because there is already a Bunnings in Brunswick, right? Not even yes, that but far this away. One is much, yeah, it's only a small one. That was at the old Spotlight store. Uh, mm -hmm. It's about 1,600 meet, uh, square metres. This one is uh, about five times, it's proposed to be about five times the size and includes a timber yard. Uh, people might be familiar with Coburg Bunnings. It's uh, roughly the same type wow, okay. uh, like that. So, so a big uh, timber trade area. Um, whereas the Brunswick Bunnings is actually just a very small, uh, small store, which is, you know, suitable for a formal, most of people's needs. I mean, Bunnings has already closed down the local hardware stores. Um, so we can't go back there, but um, it's quite suitable for what people need. And it's, you know, in a shopping area. This one is just crazy. Mm. The, the Bunnings in Coburg is part of a big um, shopping area with hundreds yep. of car parks and things like that. Um, so they're proposing a 250 car park. So it's now been put down to 236. So um, it's going. It's yeah, a very large car park, um, and basically one way to get into it. Mm. Whereas the other ones, if you go to Coburg, you'll see that they have multiple entrances. 
Mm. Um, and most of these uh, shopping centres do. This one has one entrance, and that's mm. on Glenline Road, except for trucks and trade vehicles, which are planned to exit onto a quiet residential cul-de-sac, Pitt Street. So they would have semi-trailers and lots of trade vehicles in that street. And then they're gonna try and turn into Ligon Street. And if people know Ligon Street, Brunswick, it is one of the busiest roads. It's a local road. It's not a, it's a council road, not a state government control road. And it's just uh, so much traffic. So yeah, we don't know how that will work. And the developer hasn't bothered to tell tell people how it would work either because their traffic analysis was so shoddy. So how did you all hear about it and how did the um, action group get started? Well, it was in the middle of a lockdown. So this was late August. Those of us immediately abutting the site, which includes me, but lots of them because there's lots of uh, small blocks, small apartment blocks, um, we got a notice in the mail and there was um, notices that they have to put up on the building. But of course, you know, uh, people noticed it, but um, you know, getting organized during a lockdown was an interesting experience. Um, so I knew a couple of people in the block who were good campaigners in, in the block surrounding the Bunnings. Um, and I got in touch with them, uh, people who had some history of, um, of campaigning or, um, or challenging planning applications. Um, and I got in touch with them and then we immediately formed this Glen Lyon Bun Exaction Group, three of us, <laughs> and, um, and, and started a way to organise. So we started a Google group and we started a Google Doc a docs, um, and that was a way for people to record their what they knew, and it was word of mouth because it was difficult. We couldn't talk to people in the street. You know, you probably remember mm. those times. We mm -hmm. we were avoiding people. Um, <laughs> we weren't even supposed to be letterboxing, mm. so that was unless you were a company. That was um, anyway. I won't say whether we did that or not. <laughs> um, <laughs> so. So uh, it, it was rather difficult, but through word of mouth, mainly, people knowing their neighbours and so on, um, we got the word out that uh, this group had formed and we started communicating via email and particularly by this document. So that was actually a very useful idea because we could record everybody's thoughts. Um, some expertise emerged among the community, um, you know, and we met by Zoom. So it's a bit different to normal campaigns where you can do a lot of face-to-face -face talking and we couldn't, uh, but it was, it was quite good. Thank you to modern technology that we were able to do that. Yeah. Do you think that the August sort of, um, you know, this coming up in August was sort of part, part like planned at a time when people couldn't easily organize or do you think it was just a coincidence? Uh, the council actually delayed advertising this. Right. And the reasons had, I think, something to do with the pandemic. Yeah. But they did. Um, 
so it wasn't very much time. So the the developer went to VCAT before the council had voted on it. Right. Now they can go within 60 days. That's rather unusual because even though they have that option of going within 60 days of, of lodging it, most mm. wouldn't do that because it's a very aggressive move. But this mm. developer did. Um, and so within a month, they had gone to VCAT and then the council put, the, put a stop to objections. So we had a big fight with the council too about opening up to objections because it was difficult to campaign. They still got 538 objections, which mm. is, I don't know if that's a record for, for Brunswick. <laughs> um, so that, um, they, they still got a lot, but uh, the council were trying to stop objections and said it's gone to VCAT, so there's nothing we can do. But the council itself, council of, uh, councillors, we had an election. We had no councillors to help us. It was, oh. it, was, it was a whole lot of bad things came together. So oh. our councillors at the start, our local councillors had been very helpful. They'd come to our Zoom meetings, but then they were in the caretaker mode for most of, the, most of this time. And so we could do nothing. We couldn't get the councillors to help until the election and then the election wasn't decided for a while. And then there was this thing about whether the results in Moreland were legitimate um, because of uh, one particular incident you may know about. So <laughs> it was, anyway, um, at, and then the councillors did meet finally in December and voted against it. But of course they voted that they would have opposed it and would oppose it at VCAT. Oh, so okay. that was good, um, and our our new councillors, we got um, the new the new team of councillors voted unanimously against it, and we we worked with them to actually strengthen the objections, uh, the uh, grounds for refusal. So our councillors have been very helpful, um, but uh, yes, the elected councillors. Yeah, that's a it's a helpful thing to have council on side uh, in this instance i would imagine well councillors elected councillors elected councillors yes but, yeah but yes but the council officers did recommend against it though not on all the grounds that we wanted and mm. uh councillors did uh, they mm. they uh, they included all the grounds we wanted so yeah um and so vcat um I don't personally understand all of the ins and outs of it, but it's the Victorian Civil and Administrative Tribunal where people can put their case on whether or not um, sort of particular dealings are fair and reasonable and and things like that. It's, it has a lot to do with property. Is what was the well, yeah? Well, this is to over. Well, it's because the council. They're going really because council hadn't decided within the 30, sixty days, but the sixty days is. It's probably unreasonable for such a large project. Yeah. Um, but they're taking the council to VCAT, uh, trying to overturn the council's refusal. I see. Now, the council's main grounds for refusal, and certainly ours, is traffic. Now, a lot of people go to VCAT, or a lot of groups, community groups, say that they're planning a... Uh, 
development will cause a lot of traffic. And that's true. But this one is like huge. It's not your normal amount of traffic. Um, it's mega traffic uh, on a congested road. So it's, it's not your usual case of VCAT. P people normally think uh, people go to challenge planning applications that are around large developments and they're often residential and it's often around height and setbacks, uh, overshadowing and so on. With traffic, a concern, but not the major concern. So this, is, this one is quite different to the normal things that VCATs see um, and we expect to win it on traffic grounds. And so where, where, what stage is it at now? Sounds like they took it to VCAT in August and uh, it's... Yeah, uh, September, yeah. September. So yeah. August, we heard about it. In late September, it went to VCAT. In December, council voted unanimously to, against it. Uh, it will go to VCAT in late April. So it's about mm, five weeks from today. Um, so we have... Uh, we're engaging professionals, uh, we're engaging a um, planning advocates and some experts to fight this. We believe council is also, but council's not collaborating with, with uh, residents. They don't do that on, on these sorts of things. We're separate, you know, quite separate. So we have, um, we're collecting a lot of data, um, particularly around traffic congestion, particularly around the um, people, vulnerable road users who, who use these sites. Um, I mean, the traffic is so crazy that you're going to have a driveway with uh, a car crossing at every six seconds, crossing cycle paths. It's like, it's like a really dangerous intersection. That's just the mm -hmm. driveway uh, with the cars, uh, the customers, let alone the trade vehicles and the um, trucks and the semi-trailers which make it you know and there, there's quite a lot of them too. One of the things that we often hear about when we we talk to a lot of campaigners um, working on um, advocating for for you know developments not to be built in in appropriate places and one of the things that's always the case is uh, the community themselves have to basically fundraise to employ um, advocates for their uh, submissions to VCAT and, and it's a very unfair system in the sense that a business has, you know, if they factor in the, the cost of representing themselves in VCAT and the community then has to scramble to try to uh, do the same thing. Yes. That's your experience with that. Yes, we're in the middle of fundraising. So if anyone wants to look on Chuff, stop Funding is Glenline, you can uh, help us out. But we're in the middle of fundraising and have reached 75% of our target. That's great. And only halfway through the, the time period. So yeah, we we believe we'll get there. But yes, it's, it's, it is it's uh, is very unfair. Um, and it's also because uh, council is running a case too, but to the extent that we can rely on that, we can't. We can't rely on it to, to put forward the community concerns. I mean, it's not in Moreland Council's interests at all to have this because the cost of, the traf of addressing the traffic congestion, well, you can't, you can't. But they would, they would have to do some things to stop uh, the rat running, um, to protect cyclists and so on. They'd have to do some, some things. And that would cost Moreland 
Um, you've also got an economic cost that's spread across the community uh, of uh, congestion. Because if you look at the delays, you know, and you add them up for all the road users, it actually is quite substantial. So Bunnings is going on about jobs, but you're spreading this cost among the whole community, as well as local businesses. Uh, you know, they've already closed down the local hardware stores. Mm. But, uh, you know, that we have a, a nursery just across the road, a very good nursery. Mm. Here's part of the campaign. Uh, that's threatened. We, we have, you know, small plumbing stores. They're threatened. Um, we have small, lots of cafes and Bunnings will have their own cafe, of course, uh, because, uh, you know, then they could attract customers away from our local mm. cafes. Mm. But also getting there will be hazardous. I'm, I myself am not going to walk across that driveway. Mm. So I'll have to go around the block to to even get to the tram stop yeah so what's the next steps for you guys we'll have to wrap up in a minute but um you yeah. said that there's a fundraising page we can put a link to that in our um show notes as part of our podcast and it'll be great um, yes yeah on our website at 3cr.org.au slash city limits yes we we have a, a web page to uh stop Bunnings Glen Lion, as well as a Facebook page. Uh, so people can get information there. At the moment, we're, we're just busy uh, trying to fundraise, um, getting evidence for the uh, VCAT case, uh, where we have about 50 people who are actually parties to VCAT. That means they're going to present. Um, mm. That's just residents, uh, let alone the council. Um, so we're preparing for that. Um, you know, people making submissions and, of course, uh, collecting evidence on the traffic and, and the social impacts. Great. We'll yeah. check back in with you um, later and see how, how it goes. But it sounds promising at this point. We think we'll win. Yeah. yeah. I'm convinced Excellent. we'll win. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, thanks, Andrea, for coming on the show. We'll go to another break now and come back after the break with another interview. Thank you. 3CR So, here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Jan. I think Welcome to Country is a very dangerous concept and initiative I really don't know where Welcome to Country even merged from. I know that I don't think it was a, obviously an Aboriginal initiative. I think obviously governments had uh, introduced that as they were pacifying our flag of resistance. You know, the idealism that lies behind that obviously is so that white people can feel a sense that they're more guests and they've got a right of ownership and to be here. If we're going to continuously welcome them to country, what that does, it rectitudes the fact of the moral 
racism issues in which they perpetrate against our people. Because how can we be talking about all these other issues and then compromise a hypocrisy in our own selves to welcome these murderers and these uh, slave traders and this barbaric sense of what they've done to occupy Australia on one hand and, and welcome them on the other. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. So welcome back to City Limits. Um, we've got Arini Tulidis Noyce uh, on the line here from the Renters and Housing Union. Um, so welcome, Arini. Thanks, he's for having me on the show. It's great to meet you all. Yay! Thank you so much, and um, sorry that I'm I'm bad with words sometimes. So yes, that's fair <laughs> apologies. enough. Apologies. It's a long name. <laughs> Um, so do you want to just, shall we hop in and could you give a bit of background to um, Rahu and what campaigns happened there? Absolutely. Uh, so the Renters and Housing Union or Rahu was formed um, during the COVID-19 uh, crisis and through it was birthed through the rent strike uh, movement. We unionised in May of last year and we're a member-run union rank and file um, who fight for housing rights and against evictions and I guess more broadly around the issues of um, housing being for profit. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah, amazing. Um, and so we're going to talk about the Keep Louise Home campaign today. Um, so could you tell us a bit about how that campaign began and, and why it began? Sure. Um, so towards the end of last year, Louise contacted our casework team um, through the organiser at Rahu email. And um, we had a couple of folks helping her out with um, general support. We don't give legal advice in our casework, but we were, you know, attempting to, to support Louise in what options she had at the time. Uh, you know, quite challenging. Um, Louise has been renting a house um, in Thornbury for 29 years. And as a 65-year-old tenant has had a long history in the neighbourhood and with the cooperative housing company, or co-op, sorry, um, and then Common Equity, who are the, 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 the larger company um, who basically owns the property now. So we came in quite late in the piece. This has been an issue Louise has been facing for over 12 years now. And so it wasn't necessarily the most standard case that we've handled in the union. So we attempted to help through um, mapping out our options, which is what we do with every renter who comes to us and assisted in sort of, you know, discussions um, with Common Equity themselves and trying to understand what um, legal avenues she had. And yeah. in Louise's case, it was quite difficult because she had been to VCAT from Common Equity claiming that she hadn't paid her rent. Um, she'd then taken that to the Supreme Court and self-represented herself. And the results of that case were to say that they found common equity housing to be providing a public responsibility. So she, although didn't win her case, um, that was a really um, interesting precedent to have been set. And it then got sent back to VCAT and, and she also lost that case as well. So 
that was many years ago. And when we, when we were um, introduced to Louise through her neighbours, who are also Rahu members, and through herself, we were there to help her um, in the frontline eviction defence that we could pass that legal avenue. Um, we all understand as renters that, you know, the courts are stacked against us. The tribunal might not necessarily favour tenants' rights, even though mm -hmm. they might find or decide that the landlord has breached us. Um, the actual avenues that we have have been limited because of the um, power imbalance. So in Louise's case, that's very widely felt for her. Um, Common Equity Housing is the largest landlord in Victoria, aside from the Department of Housing. Yeah, okay. And we really started to see that even though we'd found and they decided that Louise had paid her rent, um, they were still planning to evict. Wow. So that's a long-winded thing, but essentially um, in early February, I think it was early February, it's going back a few weeks now, um, we, we held a community picket out the front of Louise's home um, and that was a week after her eviction date was set to be announced. Um, she'd already been removed from the house and they were planning to remove her belongings in a few weeks time. So we organized a community picket. We had um, our eviction defense teams come down and do a training session. We fly at the neighborhood and, let, and we spoke to like local neighbors who all had like incredible stories to tell about Louise. Um, and, and we really did, you know, try to make a very public display about the fact that a huge conglomerated corporation was attempting to evict a 65 year old woman, woman into mm -hmm. homelessness. Um, so yeah, sorry, yeah, that's quite a long. Such, uh, it just is devoid of humanity that, yeah. Um, I was interested reading the media release of Rahu that I hadn't realised that community housing um, wasn't part of the eviction moratorium that was put in due to COVID. Um, and I was really surprised about that. Do you know much about um, how that happened? It's interesting. Um, and it's definitely not so, like, it's pretty common to be surprised at that. Um, I think it's very unclear and it's, potentially purposefully unclear. Community housing um, have two different acts that they fall under the Housing Act and the Residential Tenancies Act, which every renter falls under. So if you're in private, community or public, you have the RTA. What we've found through Louise's case is many other renters who rent through common equity have found that they've had a rental increase during the moratorium and over COVID last year. Yeah. Um, given to them by common equity or attempted. Uh, we've had many other community housing tenants who are predominantly women over the age of 50 be harassed, coerced or pushed out of their community housing dwellings because, you know, the rent's lower than the, what they could get at market rate, essentially. Um, and it's, it's predominantly affected women. So it's, it's unclear what act they fall under and during the moratorium any tenancy was not allowed to have their rent increased yeah any tenancy wasn't allowed to be given a notice to vacate yeah and in the case with common equity it's it's uh it's actually quite clear that those two things are banned for any kind of tenancy type where it gets tricky is 
they do fall under the Residential Tenancies Act, but the way that they maybe communicate how they um, assist quote unquote tenants is, is, you know, according to both the Housing Act and the RTA. So it's, yeah, understandable if it's confusing. Yeah, very <laughs> embroiled in a lot of bureaucracy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you mentioned that women and uh, often middle-aged women um, and above are, are facing these these problems at a higher proportion. So do you have comment on the ageism and sexism that um, is playing into uh, older women increasingly experiencing homelessness? I mean, yeah, absolutely. Uh, women over the age of 55 are the highest growing uh, demographic of people experiencing homelessness or at risk of homelessness. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, a compounded um, lot of different vulnerabilities, different risks, you know, it goes all the way back to the fact that women haven't been paid the same wage uh, and continue to not be paid the same wage and not have access to super. And women of that age of 55 and over haven't had access to super necessarily even back from their starting of work in the 70s and 80s as well. So that's where this issue starts. Um, The burden of childcare, the burden of, you know, having to work at the same time um, Mm -hmm. and the fact that, you know, they're usually having to look after children while keeping a roof over their heads is is part of the problem. Um, You know, not to say that kids are bad, but (laughs) the stress that that women experience in terms of trying to be um, and having to be the, yeah, the responsible um, protector of the family in that sense is really really a challenge. So in Louise's case, there are many other women um, with community housing, in community housing, who experience those stresses first. Um, We've had members who, you know, served a short prison sentence of a year or so and have needed housing out of that and have been thrown into rooming boards and experienced extreme abuse um, and, you know, content warning, but uh, extreme sexual abuse as well in those rooming boards. The, the options are very few and far between. And we know that the homelessness crisis is absolutely an issue that the government could fix through funding public housing, through funding secure long-term solutions. Yeah. And women feel that first. Um, I think there's also a trend that we're starting to see in the community housing models where cooperatives who've been set up by women for women, in Louise's case as a good example, have been sledged out through bureaucracy, through male predominant CEOs and boards and the kind of badgering and, and uh, excessive kind of bureaucratic systems and structures that are set up by those boards often fail women and their autonomy and their voice and their vote in that, in that housing system that was originally set up to give women autonomy and vote collectively. And Louise speaks about that a lot. Um, But yeah, there are many women in her situation who feel the same thing. Yeah, I was really taken by um, a quote from Louise that um, if I'm not safe after 29 years, how is anyone new going to be safe? Yeah, it's so true. Um, And um, I was just going to jump in and say, um, obviously, as you said, Rahu have come into this um, a, a quite a long way along this journey 
but I'm interested when you're talking about governance and my understanding was initially Louise was in a cooperative and then this was one of a number of cooperatives that Common Equity have taken over to become this huge landlord in Victoria. Um, do you know why the, like the initial eviction was given to Louise? So the original grounds to apply to evict were that Louise had failed her obligations as a tenant, i.e. rent is one of those obligations. And that's what we've seen. Most of our cases in the union have had those landlord applications to VCAT. And we've just put out a report the age has covered last week showing the steep increase in those applications from September, November and, and February of this year. So that was the original grounds. And through the process of VCAT to Supreme, back to VCAT, eventually, and this is going back about eight years ago, I think, from memory, they found that she actually had paid that rent. She'd paid over $53,000 in that rent over five years that they're claiming she never paid. So they claimed that, and yet through that process, it was found that Common Equity did get transferred that rent, yet they still applied through the same grounds to evict. Yeah, wow. It's like, if they can do that, then surely they could just falsely claim that someone hadn't paid rent um, for like any tenant and then go through that process and be able to evict them even if they had paid rent. It does set a concerning precedent, absolutely. Um, a huge part of our, our fight in this as a union is to make sure that renters know what their rights are, to know how to access those rights, to know how to speak for their rights and to know what documentation to provide in those hearings to make sure that it's provable. I mean, we also take a very strong position that even if you haven't been able to pay rent, you do not deserve to get evicted. And the COVID-19 crisis speaks volumes to that. We have many of our members who are temporary visa holders who've had no access to income support, who've had no work for over 12 months now. And of course they can't afford to pay rent. The idea that they would then go homeless is what the moratorium was intended to do, to not allow them to be homeless due to yeah. financial hardship. But yeah, it does set a concern, concerning precedent in the case of common equity. They do have the option to reverse this. They have the option to say, this is not okay. We're a community housing provider and we should be providing a home to a 65 year old woman who's been with us for 29 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and as I think you mentioned before, um, part of Louise's VCAT case showed that the housing provider that is exercising a social housing function is a public authority and therefore subject to the Charter of Human Rights and Responsibilities. So I suppose what implications does that have, um, even if it didn't help Louise's case in this instance? That's a really good question and it's a hard one to unpack. The right to housing, the right to, the human right to shelter looks different in different countries. And Australia's predominant priority for private property is a long-standing issue that goes all the way back to colonisation and the stolen land that is now being profited from. Mm -hmm. So the right to housing in Australia is one that is not propped up in, in, a, in a foundational way 
that acknowledges that problem. In Louise's case, it's a really interest, interesting precedent and it is great that it's established in one way that they have a responsibility to provide, to provide that. However, the underlying concern is that that's a responsibility of the government and community housing is a really good example of the government shirking that responsibility that they have to provide a public uh, right, that the human right and the public responsibility with our public funds to provide public resources, which are housing. And it's one of the biggest issues that we are facing at the moment is that we haven't had that prioritised by the government. So they've shirked the responsibility and the risk and given that to common equity in huge billions and billions of dollars of, of private property. And we're seeing the transfer of more public housing stock and land to groups like Common Equity, which is a huge concern. Mm-hmm. So yes, on one hand, they, they have been shown and it's been decided through court that they provide a public responsibility, but there's an issue there in terms of the fact that the government should be providing that. In, and this is what happens when it becomes privatised. We have cases like Louise and cases like women who've come out of prison who need you need help finding a house after that, but they're stuck in rooming boards and a private system. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, back to the Keep Louise Home campaign. Um, what are some of the ways that listeners could get involved or support the campaign? So at the moment, we're coming up to the end of the eviction moratorium. The, the end of the eviction ban is this Sunday. Uh, the government still has the ability to extend rental protections and we need and we are demanding that debt from the rental crisis and from COVID-19 be cancelled mm-hmm. or waived, you know, however you'd want to put it. Um, and that needs to happen through the, gov- through the state and federal governments. So to get involved in the campaign, to keep Louise home and to keep thousands of, others renters, of other renters defended against eviction out of this crisis you can head to our website rahu.org.au you can join up there and we also have a long list of resources and ways that you can stop a rental increase um, and and make sure that you can get your bond back for example Um, there are many issues that are that we're going to be facing as early as next monday Um, so yeah rahu.org.au if you have an urgent case um, or issue you can email us at organize at rahu.org.au. Wonderful. And we can put those links as well to rahu.org.au and, you know, any separate petition links um, and email details in the show notes when we post the show. Uh, So listeners can go there, uh, 3cr.org.au slash city limits to find those. And I suppose, uh, do you have any other um, comments that we haven't really gotten to on Rahu or on this campaign? Sure. Um, This Sunday we'll be standing at Parliament from 12pm to demand an end to evictions, to to cancel debt and for the government to extend rental protections for renters across Victoria. It would be amazing to have um, many people standing with us and if you can come down, we'll also be heading to the Palm Sunday um, Walk for Refugees immediately afterwards. So hope to see folks down there Um, and yeah. Let's, let's build our renters' power and fight back against cases like Louise and, and evictions together. 
Thank you so much, Irini, for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Zeb. Cheers, everybody. Yeah, thank you so much. That was really wonderful. Okay, um, thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to City Limits, and we'll catch you again next week. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. When you want renters' rights. Then you got to join the fight. The 28th of March marks the end of the eviction moratorium in Victoria. Thousands of Victorian renters will be at threat of eviction. The housing crisis is a choice made by the government. Andrews will deliberately make thousands of renters homeless. If he could stop evictions before, he can do it again. The Renters and Housing Union, Rahu, are calling on your support. Sunday, March 28th, 12pm, State Parliament. Stand with us for our demands on the Victorian government to cancel debt, end evictions, extend rental protections. Join us in the fight for renters' rights. Rahu.org.au Join your Renters and Housing Union, Rahu, today. Rahu.org.au A 3CR supporter. Housing for the Aged Action Group has gone digital to help stop the spread of the coronavirus, but we're still here. If you're over 50 years old and having problems with your housing, we can help. If you're having trouble paying the rent, problems with your retirement village manager or concerned about your caravan park, give us a call on 1300 765 178. We can also help connect you with aged care services and emergency relief if you need it. Stay safe, everyone.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.